Can you guys have a seat? I want to outline kind of a worst case scenario for you this morning, something that is just near and dear to like the pits of my, my core, something that just drives me crazy. So you're at your house, right? You're throwing together just a, a quick meal. You, you pull something out of the freezer. You read the instructions on the back of the box. And the box says, microwave this for three minutes and let cool for one. So you pop into the microwave for three minutes. You let it cool for one minute. You sit down for your first bite. And that little meal is still rock solid and frozen. So then you ask yourself, well, you ask the, the meal rather, like, hey, bud, like, what were you in there doing for three minutes? Like, you, you did nothing. You're still rock solid. So you keep your cool together, um, which is a pun, and, uh, and, and you throw it back into the microwave for just, you know, another like 30 seconds. Like, let's just try 30 more seconds, see what it does, because you don't want to overdo it, right? You pull it out again. You take a bite, and it, it's like flames from the pits of hell have entered into your, your mouth. Now you're, you're, the top of your uh, mouth is just completely burnt away. You don't have taste buds anymore. Uh, you've completely destroyed yourself with this indescribable heat. It's like something that was completely not purposeful one second is now completely overdoing it the next. That drives me crazy. I can't stand it. When things don't do the thing that they're meant to do. Microwaves are made for exactly one thing. There's just one purpose for a microwave, and that is to summon some force of unexplained electricity and use the nuclear power attached to the... I don't, I don't know what a microwave does, but the point is that the whole thing is you put the food in and it goes to the desired level of heat that you want. And I find that my microwave is consistently incapable of doing the one thing it is not designed designed to do. It's consistently incapable. Another example that I have, so I've got smart products all through my house. It's like all in the, all in the Google system. And I've got a thermostat that you, know, you just talk to and it changes the temperature of your house. It's great. I've got light bulbs and speakers and you just, it's turn on and turn off whenever you tell them to turn on and turn off. My front door is locked by an app on my phone. It's all super smart. So it's a regular occurrence then that I'd say, I've got Google, so i say, hey Google, what's the, what, what's the weather like today? And instead of telling me the weather, the Google app then tells me, oh well, here's a recipe for tomato basil soup. It's like, that's not even remotely what I asked you to do. I'll say, hey Google, can you lock the front door? And Google will respond with, oh I can't lock the front door, check that the deadbolt is not blocked. But it doesn't just tell me quietly and calmly that I can't lock my front door. Instead, from the speaker at the front door, it turns itself up to full volume and makes an announcement to the entire North Fort Worth region that my house is unlocked and you should all enter. And it, it's like the one thing, the one thing that it's designed to do, it is purposefully choosing to be hateful against me and not do. But this is a regular occurrence for me, that things that were designed to make my life easier just don't do anything that they're supposed to do. It's regular. I could go on and on with these examples, and I'm sure you have them too. Like a box of saran wrap, for example. Like a bowl is only, you know, this big, but you have to pull out six feet of saran wrap before finally you get like just a little bit that'll cooperate with the little sliding thing that cut, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. This is something that's supposed to make your life easier makes it much more difficult. It's not doing the thing. I've got another example. So you buy a, you buy a product. I've got a, I've got a lot of problems, guys. You buy a product, right? And let's say it's just like, I don't know, I don't know, a paintbrush. Let's say you buy a paintbrush. And it's got a sticker on it, like a label, right? So you look at the paintbrush. You're like, you know, 
I, would, I love this paintbrush. It's a great paintbrush. But I would love this paintbrush more if it didn't have this horrible sticker on it. So then you take the sticker off, and it doesn't come off. It's like attached with whatever glue they use to keep the rockets that go to space together. And you forever now have a paintbrush with a label on it, and that's just what your paintbrush looks like now. Unless you got half of the sticker off, then you've got residue forever. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the sticker is made only to sell the product and have a little barcode, and that's the only thing it's meant to do. And when it does something that it's not meant to do, it drives me crazy. I just, like, I, I can't handle it. One more example, because, because I had too many. Um, you go to a website, you type in your email, you type in your password. You don't remember your password, so Apple tells you your password. So you put in the password, there's a little box that says, remember my password? And you say, you know what, I would love for you to remember my password. That would be incredible if you could remember my password, because I don't remember passwords. So I check the box to remember my password, I get into the website, and the next time I visit the website, suddenly it's forgotten my password again. Like, why do we have the remember my password box if we're not going to remember my password? Why is it that things are designed to do a certain thing and that they just completely disregard their purpose, they completely disregard their entire design and just do whatever they want to do? It drives me crazy. And maybe you'll start seeing the spiritual application here in a second. <laughs> Over the past few months, we've been on this journey through the Old Testament. We've been uh, reading stories and getting to know the very specific characters who are you know, fundamental to our faith and fundamental to like, the very groundwork of our faith and who we are as believers. But maybe these characters that we've been discussing and studying, they've been kind of written off as like Sunday school characters. You know, like you learn them as children, and then you kind of forget about them, and you forget about their importance. They're just kind of mystical people who lived on like a flannel graph back in the day. And, that, and that's just kind of how we remember these characters, as if they're not real people. Um, and, and so we've been, we've been doing this study, and uh, we, we've been revisiting these people from a place of new perspective to see how our lives intersect with the example that they left behind, whether it's for good or for bad. And what we find over and over and over again... One thing that's been incredibly consistent in the study this whole time is that God has to deal with his people who don't do what they're designed to do. It's consistent throughout all of our scriptures, but especially in the Old Testament, and especially throughout this series as we've been learning it, God has to deal with a lot of people who don't do what they're designed to do. And is God faithful to do something through them anyway? Absolutely. And that's kind of been the whole summation of this Hall of Faith series, is that God is faithful regardless of how flighty we can be. But it doesn't change the fact that we've studied a lot of really flighty people who didn't do the one thing that they were designed to do. And unfortunately, there's just too many parallels to our own life for, for comfort. We, we see these studies and and, uh, well, I mean, hopefully there's not too many parallels because there's some, you know, wild people in wild circumstances, right? But at the same time, we can look at someone like Gideon and we can say, you know, my faith really isn't all that strong. There's some parallel there. Or we can, we can look at someone like Joseph and say, you know, I don't operate like I truly believe that God is present with me at all times. We can kind of get that from him. We can, we can look at someone like Samson and say, you know, I'm really not living up to my full potential in Christ. God's story is filled with people who didn't do what they were designed to do. And I guess a good alternative to this question of, you know, why, why don't people do what they're designed to do? A good alternative would be instead, what would happen if God's people actually did the right thing? Like, j just imagine, what, what would happen 
if people, God's people, acted in a way that proved he was real and proved they believed the truth of his reality, and then they lived in the truth of his reality and acted on that truth instead of living counter to their design. What, what would happen? Today's story is an exploration of that question. What would happen if God's people actually did the right thing? We're going to get to know our lead character. Her name is Deborah, and the story starts in the book of Judges. So the story starts with this very detailed backdrop for us, which is really nice, because I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes when you're reading in the Bible, um, you know, you just start in a story. It just says, and there was this guy, and then you learn about this guy. Uh, Deborah's story actually starts with a little bit of the backstory, which is really nice if you know the names that are here. So you have to know um, that there's going to be a lot of names and places, and they really are all kind of important. So bear, bear with me, um, because we want to know what is contextually driving the narrative here. But instead of like looking at the background and seeing you know, goodness and beauty and understanding, oh wow, there's like a really nice backstory here. Instead of what we find is that this backstory is dramatically less than ideal. Judges 4 verse 1 says, And the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of our Lord after Ehud had died. Again, I said these opening verses are going to have a lot of names and places. They're all important. So I want to go backwards, just a couple chapters, to Judges chapter 2. We're going to read about the death of Joshua. And when Joshua dies, instead of the Israelites honoring his legacy and memory with faithfulness toward God, instead the Israelites choose to reject him. A verse, you know, it said they did again, they did evil again. They choose to reject him instead of saying, you know, Joshua is no longer with us, but let's maintain the legacy that he is providing for us. Let's go forward in faithfulness as our, as our leader would have us do. But instead they choose to re- reject God. In fact, the text tells us that within one generation of Joshua's death, they had raised up a people who neither knew the Lord nor knew the things that he had done for Israel. Within one generation, the memory and existence of God was completely forgotten in Israel, is what the text says. One generation was all that it took for the people to abandon their God and seek after idolatry, and pagan worship. And that should be a really scary realization too. It just takes one generation for that to happen. What we find is the Israelites end up falling into the same problematic routine that we see over and over again. It's this cycle. It's a cyclical pattern. And it's very predictable. And it's very predictable all through the book of Judges. I want to outline it for you. Stage one is this. People honor God. It's great. It's a great way to start. Stage one, the people are in a state of honoring God. And they did. They serve him through the lifetime of Joshua. Stage two, the people betray God. So they just quickly forget about him. Within one generation, the memory and existence of God is just completely forgotten. They've completely abandoned their faith in favor of idolatry, which then leads to stage three. Now God says, you know, if you want to betray me, just I'll let the enemy oppress you. I'll just kind of give you up to that then. If that's what you want. If you don't want me, then you don't have to have me. The text says that God handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. Another, another version that we'll read today said to their marauders. So God says, you know, if, if you don't want me, you don't have to have me. Go, go with who, who you want. Stage four, the people 
in their situation then cry out for repentance. They find themselves in distress and they say, wait, wait, do you think that there's a way out of this? Do you think there's maybe another alternative? Remember that time that we honored God? And so they cry out in repentance. Stage five, God raises up a deliverer. In the book of Judges, this deliverer is the judge, which is where we get the name of the book. It's the story of the judges, the deliverers that God sends to bring these people out of their oppression. And then stage six, which is also stage one, the people are honoring God again. As they continue to honor him, now in stage one again, notably, when the judge dies, and I'm not making this up, this is what your Bible says, when the judge dies, they just immediately return to stage two again. So as long as the judge is alive, then they're honoring God. The judge dies and they forget about him. They betray him. And it's like this cycle that actually you see seven, continue, like seven complete cycles of in the book of Judges. Where they love him, they betray him, they are oppressed by their enemy. God raises a deliverer for them to honor him again and then they just do it all again over and over and over again. In fact, the book of Judges is a collection of these stories. When you read Judges, it's not just like a bunch of, a bunch of stories. It's one story about this cycle of oppression and honoring and betrayal that the Israelites go on over and over again and the deliverers that God continues to send his people. God sees people in their cycles. He raises up a judge to deliver them. And this is where we are in Judges chapter 2. Joshua has just died. Verses 16 through 19 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. They didn't listen to their judges. Instead, and look at the, the harshness of this language. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands, and they did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. But whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship them. They didn't turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The book of Judges is a really tough and difficult display of the pattern of people honoring God, betraying, them, betraying him to their own demise, calling out in repentance, being granted deliverance, returning back to their service in honor like, to God, and then they just kind of rinse and repeat. Let's do it again. Let's do it again, again and again. And by the end of the book, like by the time you reach the end of Judges, what you find is complete anarchy. You find self-driven motive and ill-intented desire in Israel. The whole story, this is like the very last verse in the book of Judges. The very last verse of the book says this, In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So by the end, God was just like, okay, whatever. Do what you want. See how that goes. There's like a real harshness here. And this is the world of the Judges. It was both a great blessing and a terrible burden to be called as a judge to God's people. It was a purposeful and specific calling and appointment. The judges were revered and honored because they understood that as long as we were under the care of a judge, we were protected by the Lord. They were warriors. 
They protected their people in both spiritual warfare as well as on the actual battlefield. These were well-rounded folks. The Israelites understood that as long as they were under the care of God's deliverers, they would be well. They knew this. So they respected the judges. And they trusted the judges. And they knew that God brought them judges for a particular reason for their care. Early on, you find the first judge. His name is Othniel. The Israelites reject the Lord, and God allows them to be captive for eight years. So then the people cry out to God. Again, it's all one cycle. The people cry out to God, and God raises up Othniel to be their judge. They go to the war. They are delivered, and the people are at peace for 40 years until Othniel dies. And then, and I quote, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then you find the next judge. His name is Ehud. The people are off, you know, doing their evil business. They are handed over subjection for 18 years. They cry out to God. God gives them a deliverer. And this is very strange because when you look at who Ehud was, uh, it specifically calls him a left-handed guy. So if you're left-handed, you have a chance, you know. Um, they cry out to God. God gives them a left-handed deliverer. And they are at peace for 80 years while he lived. Then Shamgar, and the same cycle happens again. So by the time we get to chapter 4, which is where our story happens today, by the time we get to chapter 4, we're finding ourselves right in the middle of one of these giant cycles. So let's go back to the verse that we already read. Verse 1 says this, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud had died. This is one cycle. But imagine kind of the frustration that's building up within God, right? It's like, I keep sending you people, and you keep ignoring my advice, and you keep doing your thing. But again, they're doing their thing. They're right in stage two, the betrayal. Now, they're going to quickly go into stage three. Is that still up? Yeah. They're going to quickly go into stage three, which is God allowing the enemy oppression. Let's keep reading. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. So things have gotten really serious for the Israelites at this point. They are without a judge. They're, they're without God's chosen deliverer. They turn away from him. God gives his chosen people away to be temporarily abandoned in the hands of the Canaanites, who are evil. They are now under the rule of King Jabin and his military commander Sisera, they're in the capital city of Hazor. This location is really important because it's on kind of the northern region that connects Israel to all of the major trade and military routes that would be important for Israel's deliverance. It matters where these guys are because they're like right there at the top of where everything is. And they're right regionally on the north side where they would have connection to Europe and to Asia and all these major trade ports. It's important where they are. It'll come up later. Verse 3 says, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we are in stage four, because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Stage four, they cry out. Stage five is coming next. We're finally introduced to the main character of our story. This is God's purposefully chosen deliverer for his people, and her name is Deborah. Verse four says, Deborah a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her 
to settle disputes. So at this time, Israel has three major offices. They have prophets, they have priests, and they have kings. The prophet's role was to speak on behalf of God to the people. The priest's job was to speak on behalf of the people to God, and then the king's role was to kind of be a general in leadership. I'm going to help you with the earthly matters. Right? Each of them were responsible, and they were accountable to one another. And it's important to note that because Deborah is one of only two people in the entire era of judges who are particularly and purposely called two of those three roles. The other one's Samuel, and he's kind of a big deal. He came after her. This was very unusual for one person to be both prophet and judge. It placed a certain level of importance and revere placed upon her. She led from a site that was called Palm of Deborah, the palm tree. So she sat underneath this tree of some kind. And the point of it is that it's centrally located to the people of Israel. So she positioned herself purposely as someone who's going to be equally accessible to the entire nation. She purposely said, I'm going to be available to my people to both judge and prophesy for them. Because God gave me a role, and I'm going to accomplish it. But it's important to know where she is. She's central, and the bad guys are where? Up north, right? So imagine her world. Imagine the life that she's living. The past several weeks, we've been kind of plotting out an expansive picture of this patriarchal society of the Old Testament. Men are in charge. Men make the decisions. Men are the distributors of justice. And women are just consistently held back by this male-dominated structure from their God-given roles and purposes. It's the society that they live in. So then imagine the pressure to perform in a way that honors God and honors the role that he has raised you up to do in face of a world that is known to suppress you. Imagine being chosen to be the one to lift a society out of spiritual bondage when that society has chosen to suppress you into social bondage. It would be so easy to just follow the Old Testament archetype of God's people just kind of rejecting their status and chasing after self-seeking betrayal of their service to him. But instead, Deborah is God's person doing the right thing. That's what we're going to find out. This is not one of the other Old Testament characters we've seen where God used them in, in spite of their problems. Deborah is a chosen person by God doing the right thing. She is faithful to her calling regardless of societal pressures. She stands firmly. She stands confidently in the role that God has purposefully placed her in. And she leads with strength and dignity. And throughout the entirety of her role in leadership, she's recognized with high honor and she's respected amongst the nation as a judge as she faithfully serves in multiple roles. She's incredible. Incredible. I've never known someone better at this, uh, she's going to hate me for this, than Miss Leah right here. He, if you don't know, is our lead pastor's mom. Um, and honestly, I can't believe I'm publicly praising her right now because she's kind of a villain in my own story. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There, there are very few people that I respect and honor like Miss Leah. She and her husband worked together in an incredible long history of service and ministry, leading people to a deep love and understanding of the Lord. But she is a little firecracker, and she will not let anyone get in the way of the mission that God has placed on her life. If she's at the store, 
She sees her interactions with the store employees as a divine appointment and mission to share the gospel. If she's overseas, she sees her interactions with the orphans and the teachers and the leaders and the impoverished and the wealthy as a divine appointment of mission to be a reflection of Christ. If she's in community with her church family, which she's here every Sunday morning and Wednesday night and every time in between, she sees her interactions with you as a divine appointment of mission to be rooted in unity and fellowship. And if you know her like I know her, then you know that this is true. She is faithful to her calling whenever, wherever, and whatever that looks like. And I want to challenge you with the same thing. Look at the model of Deborah. Look at the model of someone like Miss Leah. Look at the people who are faithful to this calling. I want to challenge you. Be faithful to your calling whenever wherever and whatever that looks like. God has called you to something. It might be something very specific. You know, for Deborah, it was a very defined and unique God-appointed role. It might be less specific for you, and that's okay. God often allows us to be the ones to fill in the blanks for that, but our calling is to be imitators of Christ, and that is universal. Our calling to make disciples is consistently true. And if you realize that you're kind of pushing that calling away in favor of your own self-serving fears or desires, then you'll find yourself falling into the cycle of stages. More than you find yourself being rooted in a stage of honor and faithfulness to God's purpose in your life. Let me ask this question. What happens? What happens when God's people do the right thing? What would happen If you are God's people, as I truly believe you to be, I want you to personalize this thought. What kingdom advancement would occur if I was fully on mission? Ask yourself, what impact on people could I make if I was outwardly focused? What eternal significance is associated with whatever my current motivation is? Am I operating from a place of motivation that has eternal significance? And if not, then I'm going to fall into this cycle of these judge stages. What would happen if God's people did the right thing? Deborah is also just an incredible character because as we read her story, she is consistently portrayed in a positive light. Again, we've seen some wild people in our study of the Old Testament, and none of them, absolutely none of them, have been presented without their faults on display. But when you read Deborah's story, you won't see even one fault. And am I saying she's faultless? No, but it's not at all what the authors chose to focus on. Deborah is consistently and solely noted for for her conviction, for her courage, for her faithfulness, the calling that God placed on her life. She's not remembered or even noted for her faults. So our story really begins with Deborah leaning into this God-appointed role of leadership and coordinating a plan to deliver God's people from their oppression. This is where we meet the second good guy. There's the one good guy, Deborah. There's a second good guy. His name is Barak. Barak is the chosen general, and his story begins this way. She, Deborah, summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go. Deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. 
Deborah understands the circumstances of oppression by King Jabin and the Canaanites. But she also understands her role as judge, that her entire purpose in this calling is to deliver the Israelites from their oppression. So she formulates this plan on a huge scale. She needed to regain control of the northern region, right? That's where these guys are, in order to establish some incredible military passageways and regain control of the north. It'll open up all these active trade routes. And in doing this, Israel would then again be self-sustaining and could eventually recover their political peace. She's got a whole plan here. It's not just, hey, let's go up and fight these guys. It's if we want Israel to be self-sustaining again and well, we have to open up these passageways. So she summons Barak to her. And he comes without any noted hesitation. We don't see anywhere where he says, like, mm, I don't really know if it's okay to follow the lead of a woman. He just does. Barak is a purposeful choice by Deborah because he is from Kadesh. This is exactly in the northern region that Deborah was going to lead her people into battle. But remember, Deborah is located centrally to the nation which is perfect when you're being a judge and a prophet and you're being accessible to your people, but it does give her limited understanding of the battleground she's about to enter. But she knows Barak's placement. She knows that Barak understands the region and would make him the most qualified general of her command. So Barak says to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. So I've heard this story preached a lot of ways. I've heard this statement qualified in a way to kind of denounce Barak as cowardly, like, "Mm, I can't do this. That is just not the case. And I want to be really emphatic about that. That is not what the scripture is telling us. Deborah calls him out specifically out of the entire nation as the general who was most qualified to lead the battle against the fiercest oppression the Israelites had ever seen. This isn't a guy who is void of bravery. This isn't a guy who would be nervous without her. This isn't a request of cowardice. This is a request of trust. Barak understands Deborah's role as prophet and judge. He understands that God purposefully commissioned Deborah as the prophet judge and deliverer to his people. And his response is more along these lines. Well, if God trusts Deborah with the deliverance of his people, then I guess I trust Deborah with the deliverance of his people. If God uses Deborah as the prophet to his people, the one with special access to speak on behalf of God himself to the people, then Deborah is the most valuable person I could possibly have alongside me. Barak makes the point clear. He is both willing to submit to Deborah's leadership as well as respect the role that God specifically and purposefully appointed for her. She was particularly qualified to provide critical guidance in battle as the deliverer of the nation, and Barak trusted that. Barak is willing to submit to the leadership of a God-appointed woman, and this is countercultural for him. This is uncommon. This is unusual in the world that we've been studying. But in doing so, he upheld her calling as worthy of being followed. And just as a side note, can you imagine if we started telling people that their God-appointed roles and callings weren't worthy of service? When we teach discipleship, 
uh, just both here and around the world. We, we emphasize a, a four-point acronym. This is really important. And if you're in the discipleship process, this is going to be really good for you to know. And if you're interested in discipleship, this is going to be really good for you to know. We have a four-point method for determining if someone is really ready to be discipled. It's a four-letter acronym, FAST. It used to be, used to be just FAT, but FAST seemed a little more desirable. Um, so the model goes like this. If someone is faithful... If someone is available, if someone is spirit-filled, and if they are teachable, then they are in a period of life when they are going to be most benefited by the intentionality of discipleship. Faithfulness is pretty easy. Do you show up regularly? Like, are you the kind of person who would do what they say they're going to do? Can you be committed? Can you be engaged to not give up? Can you not be lazy in the process? Well, then you're faithful. It's pretty easy to understand availability is also super easy to understand but it's a tough one because life happens and it's tricky and some seasons are more taxing than others and you may find yourself bogged down with the demands of your job you might find yourself on some wild school schedule you might have a baby you might have crippling anxiety you might have family drama who knows there's a lot of things that make someone unavailable you might be a faithful and willing person but if your schedule doesn't allow for the level of investment the discipleship requires then you're not going to be successful in it it's nothing to do with your value it's just you don't have the time for it spirit-filled means this that in order to be a disciple ultimately of christ then you first have to belong to christ it seems pretty obvious. The Spirit has to be working in your life, and He has to be present in your soul in order to be positively impacted by discipleship. This one is great, because God is faithful, and He is available in our lives even when we're not faithful and available. This one's like a really easy box to tick off, because it has less to do with anything you have control over and everything with who you give control to. So the Spirit is always faithful. The Spirit is always available. We don't have to really worry about that one. But then we're left with teachability. And this is the tricky one. And this is probably our most frequent discipleship killer is this, this issue of teachability. We have trouble submitting to authority. It, it's a problem for us. We, we struggle with allowing someone to lovingly correct us. For whatever reason, our, our pride suppresses our humility in moments of teaching, and we have difficulty seeing the heart behind our leader, behind a moment of hard truth. We, we can't really see that in the moment. Our arrogance is what pushes us beyond what could ever be healthy, and we destroy what should have been a meaningful moment of growth because we're prideful. Teachability is tough. Being able to look at our spiritual investors and humble ourselves to say, you know what? I'm right, uh, not I'm right, you know what, you're right, I would benefit from this change in my life. Or something like, you know, I didn't recognize that blind spot in my life. And as hard as it is to hear, I'm thankful for the illumination of that blind spot. That's teachability. It's being able to be corrected. And Barak was all of these things. He was faithful to the mission. He was available as soon as Deborah called him. God's presence was certainly with him, and he was teachable to the point of submission to an unlikely leader appointed by God himself. Barak was a good guy, one of God's people doing the right thing. So by requesting her involvement, Barak is requesting her connected presence to God himself. 
He's not asking her for any selfish reason. He's saying, you know, if we're going to win this battle, then we want God as part of it. And I know it's your extra connected to God, so we want you on our side. He recognizes the connection that Deborah has to God. He understands that there's value in having that proximity to God on his side. And so, Judges 4.9, Deborah immediately responds with, I will gladly go with you, she said. But you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera, again, the general of the other guys, to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Deborah immediately and gladly agrees to go with Barak into battle. She also qualifies this whole journey with a statement that the honor of victory would not be given to Barak, but instead would go to a different woman who we'll meet later in the story. I just personally, I know that this moment would be really tough for me because I value credit being applied where it's appropriate. You know, if, if you do something great, like I want to say, oh, he did something great. Or if I do something great, I want someone to notice that I did something great. Like, I, I, I love credit being applied where it's due. But both Deborah and Barak were confident enough with their roles in this story as they were. They were confident enough with who God created them to be that they were fine with the fact that neither of them were going to receive the ultimate honor for the victory in the end. Getting their personal glory mattered less to them than God's purposes being accomplished. And they said, you know what, well, if God's purposes are accomplished, I guess it doesn't really matter who gets the glory for it, right? It doesn't really matter if I get the credit for this. What an incredible partnership between these two. Both Barak and Deborah recognize that each other's strengths are necessary to be successful, but they also knew that the spotlight didn't need to be on their strengths. An incredible partnership. We don't see jealousy, we don't see patriarchy, we don't see arrogance or insecurity at play here. Instead, we see Deborah, who, as both prophet and judge, had the full authority to act on her own. And we see her choose to view Barak's advantages as necessary. And we see Barak, who, as a man in a patriarchal society, could have just chosen to operate from society's standard of leadership and reject God's appointed leader. He could have done that, but instead, he submitted himself to the person God had chosen to deliver his people. And they both recognized the benefit of partnership to accomplish God's work. They were better together, and they knew it. They understood that what we can do together is so much more than what we can do on our own. And I want you to know today, God didn't make you to be isolated. God didn't make you to have to do things on your own. He didn't call you to that life. It's not healthy. I mean, what happened when there was only one guy on earth? God said, it's not, this isn't good. He shouldn't be alone. Look at God in his very nature. His very nature is communal. God doesn't exist in isolation. He made himself to be communal. It's an incredible picture of the kind of lifestyle that we are to live. God didn't make you to be isolated. And I can't tell you how many times I hear things like, well, I can't be in community because dot, 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 and fill in the blanks, because I don't want to get too specific right now. And people make excuse after excuse to not partner with their brothers and sisters in Christ as we pursue the advancement of God's kingdom together. God, from the very beginning of creation, decided that we were never meant to be alone. 
And yet we still find ourselves isolating from the community he's given us and decide that we're better off alone. It's not true. We are better together. And we were created to be together. And sometimes that looks kind of messy. And sometimes someone in this room right now will offend you. And sometimes you will find yourself at odds or in conflict with each other. But if my own family has taught me anything, it's that a little conflict with my brother and with my sister doesn't make them no longer my siblings. I can be petty for a minute about it, and trust me, I'm really good at that. (laughs) But they're still my siblings at the end of the day, right? Most of the time, we find ourselves in isolation. We tend to want to blame the people that we are distancing ourselves from instead of looking internally to identify how we can better relationally engage with others. Look around the room. This church is filled with people who have roles and advantages and gifts that are not your roles or your advantages or your gifts. And that communal nature is the beautiful thing about how God designed his church to be. We are better together. And Barak and Deborah recognize this. They venture together in cooperation towards the mission to deliver Israel from their oppression. These were God's people doing the right thing together. So, Barak gathers 10,000 men, just like Deborah had commanded him to, and they all go on their journey back to Barak's hometown, which is Kadesh. Let's keep reading. It was reported to Sisera, again, the general, the other guy, the bad guy, that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the troops who were with him from Harasheth of the nations to Wadi Kashan. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Here we see the cooperation. Now you kind of see how their world works. So Deborah is commander. Barak is her general. Mount Tabor is this rounded mountain in the middle of a battleground. Barak assembles the troops, uh, and they go up to the top of the mountain. And in the meantime, Sisera, the Canaanite general, he hears about their camp at the top of the mountain, and he brings his armed troops ready to attack. And here's where you see the way that Deborah and Barak work together. Deborah doesn't just, like, provide intel for Barak to to give his own decisions to. Instead, she utilizes her role as prophet and judge to bring actionable command. She tells him what to do. And Barak was willing, as her general, to go follow her orders. Barak waits for Deborah's command, and as soon as she tells him to fight with the full confidence from the Lord, he brings the troops down the mountain to battle. Barak follows the order of the Lord through Deborah's leadership. And his faithful heart is fully displayed now. In fact, we've been looking through Hebrews 11 and seeing these like pinnacles of the faith. Barak is specifically listed by name as a man who is mighty in battle and who is noted for his faith. But in this moment, he's not looking for his own glory. He already knows that the credit for this battle is not going to him. He was throwing his life into danger. He was leading his troops into the battle and he pursued anyway, knowing that someone else would receive credit, and this made him a man ultimately remembered for his faith. So, the Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all of his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. He's escaping. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword, Not a single man was left. 
So the Israelite armies slaughter the Canaanites. And they're led to just this decisive final victory. But not before Sisera, their leader, had escaped the battle and left the troops to just die. This is where we meet an unlikely hero. The fulfillment to Deborah's prophecy, the last of our three main characters, her name is Jael. So meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there is peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael is not an Israelite. In fact, she is instead a member of a clan of people who descended from the lineage of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So she's not like quite tied to the Israel lineage in the same way that you'd expect her to from this story. A few generations earlier, so this tribe migrates towards Sinai, but Jael's subsection of her family, so she's got like this whole family that migrates together, but she's got a little offshoot that then goes and uh, moves north. And when they move north, they realize, well, we're kind of isolated by these enemies. And so this family decides to come to kind of a, a peaceful ally with the Canaanites, specifically King Jabin, to be at peace under their rule and protection. This is important. Because Jael, from her very lineage and nature, is nomadic and independent. She's not allegiant to Israel, but she's not really allegiant to Canaan either. Sisera escapes cowardly from the battle. He sees Jael. He remembers, oh, we've got like a political attachment to her. We have some peace with that girl right there. Her family is kind of known to be, you know, fine for us. So he goes to her tent. From here, let's just read the way the story plays out. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then said to, he said to her, Stand at the entrance of the tent. If a man, talking about Barak here, if a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? Say, no. Sisera is terrified at this point of Barak coming after him. He saw the slaughter of his entire army. He begs Jael to hide him and deny his presence whenever Barak comes looking for him. So she hides him under a blanket. It's probably like a rug of some kind. And she, he asks her to keep watch. What happens is he falls asleep. Jail's going to do something crazy here in a minute, um, but there's some motivation that's missing from this chapter. We have to skip ahead to chapter 5 to understand some of the nuance behind what Jail's about to do before I tell you what she does. We're, what we're about to read, it's a poetic account of the story after the story happens. So you read chapter 4, and it's the story, and then chapter 5 is kind of the story again from a different angle. So we see um, this poetic account taking place. We're going to read about Sisera's mother growing impatient. She's just sitting by the window waiting for her son to return home from battle. Verse 28 of chapter 5 says this. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? There's only one explanation, and everyone in the room knows the answer. They expect that Sisera has led his armies to victory, because there's no reason to think that he won't win this battle, and that they have won. They expect that the battle has ended, and that the men are now exploiting their captives. You'll see what that means. Verses 29 and 30 say this. Her wisest princesses answer her. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil, a girl or two for each warrior? 
the spoil of colored garments for Sisera, the spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck. So just a few verses earlier in chapter 5, Jael is noted for being the most blessed of women, most blessed of women. And then again, but more specifically, and this is important, she is marked as the most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Jael knew the character of Sisera. This wasn't like a, an unknown thing. They, they were at allies with one another. Her family was connected enough to understand what was to come of the women who were taken captive. It wasn't going to be a surprise. They knew what was happening. These women were going to be dehumanized to become victory spoils on par with garments and jewelry. That's what's to come of the women. A girl or two for each warrior. What Jael's about to do isn't just some moment of unprovoked violence. She's about to save the other tent-dwelling women from extreme abuse. Jael will ultimately be remembered and recognized as being the champion that Deborah prophesied for God's people, but she's also going to be the one who delivers the victimized women of Israel who are said to become objects of lust for the Canaanites. So, Jael, in an extreme act of courage, sees her sleeping house guest under her rug. She recognizes the necessary gravity of his fate. So, while he was sleeping from exhaustion... Haber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. She waits for him to fall asleep. She hammers a tent peg through his head. And this fulfilled Deborah's prophecy of Sisera being taken down by a woman and the honor of victory ultimately belonging to her. And this is kind of the culmination of our thesis question. What happens when God's people do the right thing? Well, the right things start happening in return. What happens when God's people do the right thing? Well, the right stuff just starts happening. Deborah and Barak's righteous actions set up the framework that would allow other people to also do the right thing. Their pursuit of goodness had positive repercussions beyond themselves. Well, it wasn't really positive for Sisera, obviously. But positive ripples are echoing through the purpose of God because his people dared to be on the right side of history. Barak catches up. He finds the scene. And he's met by Jael's announcement that the Canaanite general has now been assassinated. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come! And I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera, lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. The battle was complete now. The people were once again free from their bondage and oppression, thanks to God's deliverance. Stage six. That day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase until King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. In the end, the leadership goes to Deborah, the faithfulness goes to Barak, but the credit goes to Jael. But the true champion of this story isn't Jael or Barak or Deborah. The one who was responsible for this victory was God himself. However, for whatever reason, he allowed appointed people to be threaded into his fabric of redemption in order to accomplish his work. Deborah, Barak, and even Jael were faithful to that appointment. 
So of the stories in Judges, it's hard to find one that so positively talks about the main characters. It's really hard to find stories where people are listed for good things. But So like when we look at Gideon or, or Jephthah or Samson, we see their faults illuminated just as brightly as their strengths. And that's not the case with this story. Deborah and Barak are wise. They are brave. They are quick to exercise the gifting that God has given them. They respect the roles that God has placed them in. Even Jael, who could have acted in allegiance with her political allies, instead chose to act for the sake of God's people. The whole story is summed up in a song, which is chapter 5. It's this beautiful, poetic account of the same story we just read. It's written and sung by Deborah herself in response to God's providence and protection. Which, by the way, just as, as your worship pastor, I want you to know, that it's not uncommon through all of Scripture for the response to God's goodness is for his people to sing in enthusiastic worship. It's, it's a very common theme through all of Scripture. The three main characters are revisited in this song with admiration and with note of their devotion to God's purpose. Deborah is remembered for her leadership and her heart for God's people as the mother of Israel. It's a great way to be remembered. Barak is remembered for his partnership in battle and his faithfulness towards God's mission. Jael, even, is remembered in this song as the unlikely woman who took an enormous risk to deliver God's oppressed people. And the whole song ends with this, with a petition for God to bless those who love him. Deborah ends her song with this prayer. Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did. But may those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. Do you love God? I imagine for the most part that's a yes in this room. Yes. But do you act like it? Do your actions showcase your love for him? Or are you at least developing habits that make you more of a Deborah or more of a Barak? What, what happens when God's people do the right thing? We all agree today that this is God's people. What would happen if we were to do the right thing? We've been studying story after story after story of God's people failing him time and time again, and God being perpetually faithful despite their faithlessness. But what would happen if the opposite circumstances were true? What would happen if the opposite circumstances were presented to God? What if we didn't have to make God prove himself? over and over again as faithful in spite of us? What if we didn't make him have to do that? What if instead we could dis he could display his faithfulness in us more fully because we're living faithfully for him? Consider the sages. I want to put the sages back up again. Consider these sages. The people honor God. The people betray God. God allows enemy oppression. The people cry out in repentance. God raises the deliverer, and now they honor God again. Do you ever find yourself stuck in this cycle? You know, you come to a place of spiritual health. You start developing habits and disciplines and routines that honor God. But then just one habit falters, and that's usually all it takes. Just one of these newly developed habits falter, and you find yourself completely falling off your spiritual regimen. And you start living in a style of self-satisfaction and thus betraying the very God who you once sought to honor. 
And now because of your faltered faith, you find yourself oppressed in your own sin now, buried by the weight of your arrogance and buried by the weight of your jealousy and your hatred or your pettiness or whatever you find yourself entangled in. And you finally realize you've had enough, so you call out to Jesus in repentance and he faithfully delivers you because he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so you begin to honor him again with your life and your love and your devotion until one day that self-satisfying craving comes creeping back in and you fall at the stage two, all over again. God did not design you for that. This is a broken model. He made you with purpose and with calling. He desires so deeply for you to be seeking after him with consistency and with goodness. We've been studying all these stories of God's people being messy and broken. Imagine how incredible our lives would be if we instead started patterning ourselves after the people who saw God's call to righteousness and then actually followed through with that. What if those were the people that we modeled after? Because we are God's people called to righteousness. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and it's one of the more positive Paul letters. He says to them, Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. What happens when God's people do the right thing? The God of peace will be with you. If we made a habit of living aligned with righteousness, we can be confident that God's peace will dwell in our hearts and give us the confidence we need to continue on as we pursue him. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to spend some time in reflection together. I just want to focus in for a moment. I want to allow ourselves to come into alignment with the Spirit and to listen closely to His direction. But first off, I think it's important to ask what I know to be the most important question I could ask. Are you one of God's people? I mean, we're, today's story is all about God's people doing the right thing. But what if you don't find yourself in that bracket? What if you've never yourself given yourself to God's direction and authority and you're not sure you could say with certainty, I belong to God? If this is you, I want you to know God wants to have a relationship with you. He used to bring deliverance to his people through judges who would see the nations to victory. But he since sent his son to be your deliverer. And just like the people of Israel had to call out in repentance for the Deliverer to rescue them, we too have to make the same decision. If you've never done this, but if you want to, what I want you to do is to go out of your comfort zone for a minute. There are trusted deacons and elders right here at the front. They can show you what it means to be God's child and for you to give your life to him. At any point during this invitation, I want you to go out of your comfort zone. Or at any point after today's service, I want you to find, find one of them and tell them, I want to be one of God's people. 
I promise it will bring you the peace that you've missed. And that peace will continue to dwell in your heart and in your life. To those of you who would say, yes, I am one of God's people, I want you to ask yourself this question then. Have I been faithful to God's calling on my life? This could be so many things. And truly, only you and God know what he's impressed upon your heart for your life's work and direction. You guys are the only ones to know that. But have you been faithful to pursuing his life that he's asked you to live? For Deborah, it was this lofty role of leadership, right? And maybe it's the same for you, but maybe it's a slightly more attainable thing. Maybe it's a call to service. Maybe it's a call to be a proactive parent. Maybe it's a call to be a consistent example of humility or joy or peace or love or control. Maybe it's a call to godliness that you've been avoiding. Maybe it's a call to be perceptive to his voice and be his agent for change in the people you have in your circles. Have I been faithful to whatever calling he's given me? Another question could be this. Have I allowed godly people to invest in my life and speak words of wisdom to my blind spots? Maybe this is a moment for you to recognize that you were made for community. You don't have to avoid your involvement in discipleship. Allow yourself to submit to someone's guidance and leadership and get in the game. We are better together than we ever could be in isolation. The partnership we have makes us stronger. Ask yourself this. Do I do good for selfish ambition and for my own praise? Neither Deborah or Barak received the final credit for the work they invested. But the lack of honor didn't stop them from doing what God had called them to do. Check your motivations. Are you doing good for your own glory? Or are you doing good things to reflect a a pseudo-righteousness that doesn't really belong to you? Where is your motivation? Remember, God alone deserves the honor. Not you, not anyone else. We are God's people, and we should be doing the right things because he deserves it, and he will receive the honor for it. Let's pray together. God, I am yours. I am your child. And I am one of your people. But I know that I often follow patterns of people, Uh, whose lives were unstable in reflecting your goodness. God, allow me the courage and the tenacity to rise up to the calling that you've placed on my own life. I want to be a Deborah. I want to be a Barak who fearlessly moved in accordance to your will. God, give me people to invest in. Give me people who will invest in me. Give me partnerships that can make your body stronger as we work together for the advancement of your kingdom. Allow me to operate from a place that magnifies you instead of seeking after my own credit or or feeding my own arrogance. You will receive the honor. You will receive the glory and all praise forever and ever.